Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to talk today about what is happening in Benton Harbor, where for a long time now, residents have not had consistent access to clean drinking water. Now, that should sound familiar given Flint's long struggle with lead-tainted water, but why haven't we made more progress on this issue as a state? Then we're going to talk about the rebirth of Michigan's only historically black college, Lewis College of Business. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So it has been six years since the Flint water crisis shook us awake and forced us to look at the very real dangers of disinvestment, neglect, and the paternalistic policies that poisoned that city's drinking water. What have we learned in those six years? Can we honestly say we've done the things necessary to avoid this again in the future? Because we now have yet another drinking water crisis on our hands. The lead in Benton Harbor's drinking water is actually higher right now than it was in Flint at the height of that city's water crisis. And although that situation is starting to get more attention, we're hearing that the water in Benton Harbor has actually been contaminated for at least three years now. So the question is, how could we allow this to happen? Didn't Flint teach us anything? And how long before the crisis that lurks beneath the surface in so many of our cities reaches all of us. What's it going to take to do the kind of investing in infrastructure that we need to do as a state to stop this dangerous and frankly embarrassing kind of problem from happening? There is no earthly reason for people in Benton Harbor, Michigan, in the wealthiest nation on the planet, to wonder whether when they turn the tap on, the water that comes out is clean. I can't, I can't begin to explain why and how that makes any sense. But that is where we begin the conversation today. What's going on in Benton Harbor and what it tells us about Michigan as a state. We've got two really great guests to guide us through this conversation. Nick Leonard is executive director of the Great Lakes Environmental Law Center, which filed an emergency petition with the EPA urging that agency to take action on lead contamination in Benton Harbor's drinking water. Nick, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks. Great to be here, Stephen. Also with us is the Reverend Edward Pinckney. He is president and CEO of the Benton Harbor Community Water Council. Reverend Pinckney, welcome to Detroit Today. And thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. And so, thank Nick, Nick for showing up because he, he's a hero. Yes. <laughs> so, Nick, uh, I'm going to start with you. Bring us up to speed on the situation in Benton Harbor as it stands right now. Uh, where are we with the contamination, what caused it, and the state mitigating that? So the, the interesting thing about Benton Harbor, unlike Flint, is we don't really know what caused the contamination there. Uh, in Flint, we could tie the cause of contamination to a single decision, the emergency manager's decision to switch the source of water uh, to the Flint River, which was more corrosive, and the failure to update the corrosion control treatment uh, to match that change in the water chemistry. In Benton Harbor, we saw elevated levels of lead in drinking water starting in 2018, but there was no similar sort of decision or discernible moment that 
that caused that. It's just all of a sudden there were lead levels above the lead action level mm. in Benton Harbor. And unfortunately, from there, it continued for, as you mentioned, another three years without any discernible decrease in the lead levels in Benton Harbor. And so when we saw this, you know, in September of this year, September 9th, we filed our emergency petition with the EPA because not only had we seen high lead levels in three years, but we didn't see a, a, an end in sight. We saw that this this problem would continue for at least another two to three years based on the action that was being taken at the time. And we saw a very limited emergency response. There was a limited distribution of water filters to residents, but residents weren't being given free bottled water. They weren't being given public health services, and there was no commitment for expedited lead service line replacement. And for us, that was completely unacceptable to have another black city in Michigan, as you mentioned, six years after Flint, dealing with a prolonged lead crisis and without getting the emergency services they needed to provide them with safe drinking water. And so since we filed our emergency petition, fortunately, uh, significant action has been taken. Residents are now getting access to bottled water at distribution sites and through deliveries. The governor has announced a plan to replace all lead service lines within 18 months, and there is more uh, health care services being made available to residents, including premixed formula for, for infants, which is particularly important since infants are so vulnerable mm-hmm. to, to lead in drinking water. Mm-hmm. So you noted recently that we have adopted here in Michigan the strongest lead in drinking water regulations in the nation. That's mm-hmm. something we did after the Flint water crisis. So I think one of the questions now is, how could another city be subjected to long-term lead contamination in its drinking water without the state acting? We supposedly, one of the things that we were going to eliminate was not knowing, not acting, letting things go on forever. Why is that happening now in Benton Harbor? There's really a couple of things there. First, the state did act. We just don't. We we have some uh, critiques about how they acted, and specifically, we have some critiques about sort of how they sort of de- made determinations about introducing corrosion control uh, treatment to the water system to try to prevent the corrosion of lead pipes. And we basically think that they should have conducted a comprehensive study of corrosion control right off the bat. And they they are just getting to that this summer, which was particularly concerned to us. But you know, even if they had done that, you're still looking at years of exposure for Benton Harbor residents. And so this is just a problem with the framework of our lead and copper rule. I mean, yes, we made our lead and copper rule the strongest in the nation, but it still relies on an overly complex system of monitoring and response and treatment. What we ultimately need to do is get the lead pipes out of the ground and you know, focus more of our energy on, on that, just removing the source of contamination. Because I think what's becoming clear is that in, unless we do that, these instances are going to keep popping up. And you know, we also don't have you know, the emergency response protocols in place to, to address this. I mean, Flint happened six years ago. We had there, – there was no framework in place to say, like, oh, we've, we have another – instance where a black community in Detroit or in, in Michigan is you know, confronting prolonged lead exposure, we need to get them bottled water. You know, that's still happening on an ad hoc basis. And so, you know, in short, we need infrastructure investment. We need emergency response investment. And we, until we do those things, you know, this is, this is going to happen again. We can guarantee it. Hmm. So Reverend Pinkney, I want to bring you into the conversation here. You are actually out in the community making water deliveries. You are responding to the needs that have cropped up in Benton Harbor because there's not access to clean drinking water. I want you to give us a sense of what that's like. What are things like uh, for people who live in that community? What are they experiencing and what are you hearing from them when you're, you're delivering them water? 
Well, they're, they're very upset. Uh, I think now we have a, what we call a major confrontation, you know. Uh, they, they just don't know, you know. Uh, really, they're, they're not saying a whole lot. Uh, the, the government words was that because of abundance of caution, don't drink the water, don't brush your teeth with the water, don't cook with the water, uh, don't bathe with the water, and uh, and don't you know make baby uh, That that word itself tells you that uh, the, the commitment there. You know the language has to be right, especially in in in, in a community like Benton Harbor. You just have to say the word. The water is unsafe, hmm. and if you want to bring back trust, you got to tell the truth. It's, it's, it's to me, it's so simple. I I don't see how a person can get around that. You know. Saying that the water is unsafe, you know, if you got high levels of lead in the water and you have children and you tell them because of a abundance of caution, uh, don't drink the water. Also, uh, it's a possibility that the water is good and it's, it's and it's, and it is safe to drink. And that's the message. That's the wrong message to send here in the city of Denver. Mm. So I also want to get you to talk a little about the local, state, and federal response to all of this. It has been slow. It has sometimes uh, been inept. Um, but but what's your assessment of how much of a priority the people of Benton Harbor are to the people who represent them uh, there in Benton Harbor and Lansing and in Washington? Well, uh, priority here when it comes to city government uh it appears for three years that uh, they said nothing. We did have a plant supervisor, Michael O'Malley, who did sound the alarm. He told them that the water was bad, and they ended up firing him. Uh, uh, I would classify him as a whistleblower because he told the first year he told them about it. But they did not make announce announcement to the newspaper. They did not make announcement to the community. They did exactly nothing. And that that second year, uh, O'Malley once again. But then they when they terminated him, they brought in a guy named Ryan Jones, who actually did nothing. Also, so they, they told the city government, and, and uh, Eagles already knew because usually when you run the test, they they normally get the. Uh, uh, they, they get the assessment of how good they are, how bad they are, the level of lead in it. And then it's then sent to the city of Benton Harbor. And then that's how all this feels. Uh, I, I think that they're less. I, 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 I think that uh, um, the city government should have sounded the alarm. They should have told people that the water will contaminate, but they did not. So, you know, they get an elf if it was crazy deal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nick, back to you. You had a call with the EPA yesterday. So what, if anything, are you able to share about what you learned from that call? Yeah, so me and a number of the petitioners, including Reverend Pinkney here, had a call with the EPA and also included in the call was folks from Eagle and Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. And, you know, it, we got updates on their emergency response. And so you know, we know that the EPA is trying to make sure that water filters are going to work to effectively reduce lead for residents in Benton Harbor because there's some concerns that they might not work, especially when lead levels are particularly high in from household taps. Uh, DHHS continues to provide uh, bottled water with the goal of making sure that every Benton Harbor resident has enough bottled water for all of their drinking and cooking needs until the water is determined to be safe. And they're doing that both through water distribution sites throughout the community and through home delivery for residents that might not be able to access water distribution sites. And then, you know, we learned about some more um, health care uh, services that are available, particularly for infants, such as, you know, the pre-mixed formula that I had mentioned and other things. And so, you know, unfortunately, we also learned about a water main break 
in Benton Harbor that had basically made most of the city uh, just un- unable to access any water mm-hmm. for you know cooking, bathing, uh, anything. And so, I, but my understanding is they're working to uh, absolve that this morning. But unfortunately, you know, especially in communities like this where the infrastructure is so old, uh, so decrepit when it when it rains, it pours, so to speak. But we're hopeful that we're on the right track and that Benton Harbor residents you know, shouldn't have had to wait this long, but that they'll have some safe drinking water available to them for now and into the future. Mm-hmm. So, Reverend Pinkley, I want to talk just a little about the city of Benton Harbor and how small it is um, and how easy it would be, for instance, if the state decided to just kind of uh, try to take care of all of the residents there. I think here in southeast Michigan, we don't always... Uh, understand geography <laughs> on the west side of the state uh, quite as well as those people who who live there. But you are delivering, for instance, water to every address in the city of, of Benton Harbor uh, in inside of a day. You're doing that. Your group is doing that. Uh, give us a sense of how easily you think you could be getting more help from local and state officials. Well, you know, uh, I laid out a plan that uh, my group covers a third in in the first ward. Uh, uh, the other group would cover the second ward, which is a very, very small ward. And then another group would cover the fourth ward. And we're going to be obligated to those wards to make sure they have water. Uh, I, I, I said it, you know, maybe five or six times to them. They show them that we want to make sure only residents of Benton Harbor get this water. Uh, they, it's true that they're, they're, they're pumping 30,000 cases, but 25,000 is going to the surrounding area because Benton Harbor is such a small city. You know, and they're, I would say they're a lot smarter than the people in Benton Harbor because they started lining up an hour before, and the news media loves to see the long lines, hmm. you see. The people from Benton Harbor usually be at the end of that line, and sometimes they be, we, we run out of water before we get to them. They know not to do come to my site and do it because it's not happening. But they, but this is one of the things that could be done. We need to go start going door to door here, and if we can do it, if my group can do it in in a day, in a, and actually one day, you know. I was, can you imagine what, what two groups that's helping could do? We can make sure that they have good, clean, safe water, bottled water, and we can do it. You know, we can do it three times a week. The same thing. We don't have to do it every day. You can do it three times a week, and everybody will have clean, safe water, bottled water. But the way they're doing it now is, is, is you know, is, is really the, the residents of Benson Harbor was not receiving the water. Mm. It was everybody else, and they was coming from everywhere. I was, uh, 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 well, I never seen so many white people in Benton Harbor. Hmm. I mean, the land be, be pushed all around the corners, and we, we talk about five, six hundred cars, you see. But it's unfortunate. There is a better way, and let's do it a better way. So when you suggest that, when you suggest that way to the mayor there or to state officials, what do they say? It, it, actually, you know, well, we'll look into it. You know, those, those are the, that's the language you, you, you receive. We'll look into it, you know. But, you know, there's no time when, when, when the water was off for those two days. Uh, uh, people was unable to even push the toilet, you see, and, 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 and didn't appear like it was a crisis to them, hmm. you see. There's nothing down here is a crisis when it comes to black people. Nothing. And it's unfortunate that that's the way they think. But we, they should have been on top of that. They, they didn't even tell the people that the water would be cut off. They just cut it off. They didn't tell that, it, they, that the water was going to be off on one day or two days. They just cut it off and just, you know, and leave the people. Uh, and, and uh, you know, they, it's so unbalanced here that something needs to be done immediately. 
Mm. And, and the conversation is important because then we can get to the root of the problem and deal with that. You see, the, the mayor here, he's being recalled. They, they're sick of all this shenanigans, mm. you know. And that's the language that we have to, you know, tell people, let's do something different and make this city better. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation. I want to thank Reverend uh, Ed Pinkney for joining us from Benton Harbor to tell us about what's going on on the ground there. We, of course, hope that things get better, uh, but really the work that you're doing is really important. Thanks so much for being with us here on the show. Thank you. When we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Nick Leonard, and we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts about what we're seeing in Benton Harbor, another majority black city here in Michigan that has high levels of lead in its water? How long have you known that Benton Harbor had this water crisis going on? It's been three years, apparently, and many of us were not really told about it. There hadn't been a whole lot of coverage, and there hadn't been a whole lot of response. We especially want to hear from you uh, if you're somebody who has connections to Benton Harbor or to Flint, or if you've had to deal with lead exposure concerns in the past. Also give us a call and as always talk to us about infrastructure, one of our favorite subjects here on Detroit Today. What ought we be doing to make sure that these things no longer happen? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, Thanks for tuning in. My guest right now is Nick Leonard. He is executive director of the Great Lakes Environmental Law Center, which filed an emergency petition with the EPA, urging that agency to take action on lead contamination in Benton Harbor's drinking water. Yes, Benton Harbor is experiencing something very similar to what the city of Flint experienced uh, six years ago. Uh, The drinking water there is unsafe. Uh, it's tainted with lead, and uh, there is a response from local and state officials that hasn't quite met the challenge uh, of making sure that when residents turn the tap on, the water that comes out is clean for drinking or for bathing or for the many different things that we use uh, water for. <clears throat> we want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Call and tell us what you think of what's going on in Benton Harbor. Does it remind you of what happened in Flint? And are you asking the same question that I am, which is how can we six years later be facing many of the same kinds of dynamics around this problem? It's another city that is majority African-American that is uh, experiencing this problem. I don't think that's necessarily a coincidence. Uh, It is another city where the response to the issue of tainted water has not measured up to the the level of the crisis. Uh, Why does this keep happening? And uh, what are we doing to change the narrative in this state about infrastructure? How do we prevent these things from happening in the first place so we don't get caught on our heels not being able to respond in the right ways. Uh, I want to hear from you about what you're thinking about that, what you think about all this money for infrastructure that's coming from the federal government that is being held up in Lansing by Republican legislators who uh, want to fight with the governor about how to spend it. Uh, Meanwhile, we have uh, people who don't have clean drinking water 
uh, in the southwest part of the state. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter. Put comments there and we'll work you uh, into the conversation. Uh, Nick, I want to start uh, this time uh, talking about uh, yesterday and the state's top environmental officials testifying in Lansing before a state house committee. They defended the Whitmer administration's decision not to issue a state of emergency in Benton Harbor, saying, quote, all hands on deck, uh, that kind of approach would work in this situation. I want to hear a little bit of what Michigan Department of Environmental Great Lakes and Energy, Liesl Clark, had to say uh, to that state overhouse committee. The problem it currently faces of lead leaching into drinking water is a national issue that is particularly common and pronounced in older communities like Benton Harbor with outmoded lead service lines and other fixtures and inadequate resources to address these challenges. Okay, so what did you make of that? Does that is that the kind of response we we need from the Whitmer administration? The kind of response that we need is a response that centers Benton Harbor residents, and you know, that that's been our goal. You know, as we really dug in on this issue and started to work on it, and, and that's what we've been trying to get Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy and the Whitmer administration to do is, you know, yes, what was this problem decades in its creation? Yes. You know, was it something that they were, they were the sole cause of? No. But the reality is, you know, in Michigan right now, six years after Flint, we have another majority black city that's unable to turn its tap on and get safe drinking water and has been unable to do so for three years and will be unable to do so for the foreseeable future. Mm. And that is shocking, and that requires all of us, including organizations like mine and including certainly our, our governmental stakeholders, to look and say, how did this happen? And... How can we make sure that we don't get to this point again? Because quite frankly, you know, we, we, we were late. You know, three years is a long time. Mm-hmm. And you, we need to be centering those people, centering their health, and certainly for right now and into the future to make sure that and we need to be figuring out, you know, what was the remaining gap that allowed this to happen. Yeah. So a big knee on Twitter says... It's not a coincidence that another water crisis is happening in another area where mostly black and brown people live. There's no way something like this could happen in Livonia. Disinvestment does not happen in places like that, and the reason is as plain as uh, black and white. Uh, Nick, let's talk about race here and the role that it is likely playing, uh, maybe playing. Um, Would this happen in Livonia, Or, or if it did, I think... The bigger question is, uh, if it did happen in a, a community like Livonia or Bloomfield Hills or Gross Point, what would the response be, right? Uh, would it look the way it does because uh, the residents of, of Benton Harbor are not white and are not mm-hmm. wealthy? Well, I think the Gross Points are a great example because there's a community with a lot of older homes mm-hmm. and that, that undoubtedly have you have the same sort of lead in their drinking water infrastructure as older communities like Benton Harbor does. But not not only does this type of response not happen, but they, they don't even get to the problem because they, the whiter communities, richer communities, are able to make the adequate investments in their drinking water systems to make sure that this doesn't happen. And... You know, what I say the problems are in Benton Harbor have been, been decades in the making. You know, what I think you can tie a direct line from their current water crisis to the intentional acts of discrimination that were carried out by our federal, state, and local governments in the mid-20th century regarding redlining, school segregation, 
basically a number of policies meant to limit the opportunities of achievement for black Americans. And you can connect it to this crisis. Because basically, those policies made Benton Harbor look the way it is today. It made it into a city where it was almost exclusively black residents, and and many, many of which are low income, and made it unable to make the investments in its basic public services. And so those decisions have consequences in long time and drastic consequences. And I think this is one of those consequences. Mm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us what you make of the water crisis in Benton Harbor, whether it reminds you of the Flint water crisis, uh, whether you're questioning how we could be in the same situation again with a small majority black city here in Michigan where residents just don't have access to clean drinking water. Uh, beyond this crisis, what do you think we ought to be doing to upgrade the infrastructure here uh, in Michigan? Are you frustrated that there are uh, millions, 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 millions of dollars uh, that are flowing into Lansing uh, right now that could be directed toward infrastructure, uh, but that a political disagreement uh, is holding those up? Republicans uh, don't want to spend it the way that Governor Gretchen Whitmer wants to spend it. And so the money's just sitting there waiting to be spent uh, to improve these things. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start today with Sarah in Rochester. Sarah, welcome to the show. Good morning, and thank you for um, covering this issue. Sure. Um, Definitely, this is environmental racism. uh, And Reverend Pinckney, if it weren't for him and the work that he has done in Benton Harbor, this would not have come to light. Um, And I just, you know, I first met Reverend Pinckney when he was in prison, Hmm. uh, wrongfully in Marquette, uh, for advocating for his community. Uh, the Michigan Supreme Court overturned that um, election violation uh, decision. But he is back in the community, and he is fighting for uh, the the people. I mean, that community has been so destroyed by corporations, and they're leaving uh, a community decimated uh, as they move the, the production and the the facilities out uh, very much in the way that Detroit has because of the auto industry. But, you know, every community needs a Reverend Pinkney. You know, Sarah, I really appreciate uh, the call and the, uh, the info about Reverend, Reverend Pinkney. I think you're, you're right that the work he's doing is so critical. Uh, Nick, I I, want to just point out though, that what Sarah's saying, which is that if, Reverend Pinckney had not stood up and said something about this that we might not know about it. That's exactly the opposite of what I think the outcomes were supposed to be from the new regulations and all the things we put into place after Flint. It's it's not up to members of the community to to flag these, these kind of things. There are more uh, regulations that we are supposed to be following and action is supposed to happen uh, when when we get to certain points why we are not we are not seeing that function the way it's supposed to no we're not and I think we're realizing that the big gap that we have in our lead and copper rule is that you know it even when done properly it can take years to respond to instances of high lead levels in community. And you know, here, we think that the, the state mismanaged its response. But once again, even if it properly managed its response, it could take a long time. And one of the problems with our lead and cap rule is there's, it, it says nothing about providing safe drinking water to residents in the interim as part of an emergency response. And so... To us, you know, our, our current regulations allow uh, 
residents to continue to drink unsafe water while the state tries to figure out a response? We, we need to figure out a more comprehensive and systematic approach to make sure that when this happens again, because it will happen again, mm-hmm. we're not in the same boat of trying to stand up an emergency response on an ad hoc basis. You know, mm-hmm. I think if, if, if we get to the, you know, it, we, we've had this happen twice. If it happens a third time, it's, it's even more unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And so we need to take a hard look and figure out what that emergency response should look like and have a plan for it right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Sarah, really appreciate the call uh, and, and the insight there. Let's go to Chris in Detroit. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Um, hey. So, you know, I voted for Governor Whitmer uh, the last time around. And, you know, I've been essentially planning on most likely doing so, just assuming that I'm not going to have a favorable opinion of her forthcoming opponent from the Republican Party. I'm an independent voter, though. I'm not really a partisan. Um, I'm just wondering how someone who maybe is more typically aligned staunchly with the Democratic Party, you know, and Stephen, you know, you're somewhat, you know, to be fair, somewhat of a partisan towards the Democratic Party. You know, how can we, you know, a lot of people have maligned Rick Snyder for his role in the Flint water crisis, and and I think rightfully so. You know, to me, this is Whitmer, you know, practicing willful neglect. And I guess how can we hold her to a a separate standard than we do Rick Snyder when, Mm. you know, the the two situations are not the same. But in some ways, it almost seems like it's a, it's, it's worse. You know, the scale isn't worse than, than Flint and, you know, sort of the, what led up to it in terms of the emergency management situation and, you know, just poor policy decisions for switching the water over, ignoring, you know, rules and, and, and science, you know, it's not the same situation, but at mm-hmm. this point, you know, Ben Harbor's is a small town. You know, we could find money in the budget. Michigan's had to budget surplus due to the CARES Act. So the fact that we're not finding the money in order to take care of these people who are largely poor people, black people, you know, I just, I don't, I don't understand how we can hold Wetmer to a separate standard. So I'm just interested to know your take on it. Yeah, no, it's a great question, Chris. And and I really appreciate your calling in and asking it. Um, I, I don't think we ought to be holding the governor to a different standard here. The, the you're you're right that the circumstances are somewhat different, but here's the thing that's the same: people in Flint didn't have access to clean drinking water, so you had lots of people, including lots of the children of that city, drinking water that was lead tainted. That is exactly the same situation that we have in Benton Harbor, no matter the circumstances that produced that outcome. And so uh, the, the governor, this, this to me, uh, is, is absolutely uh, her responsibility to figure out how to, how to fix that. Now, as for whether, uh, whether I support the governor or don't, I think, I think um, the approach that I always take with politicians is uh, you support politicians when they are fulfilling their duties to represent the people who elected them, and you don't support them when they don't do that. Uh, and I think that is, you know, the kind of thing that can be fluid, right? Uh, you can, as you said, you voted for for Governor Whitmer uh, in 2018, um, and now have concerns about the way she's performing. That's the way it's supposed to work. Uh, a, a vote for a candidate. Uh, is not a marriage proposal. It's not that you're saying you're going to forever support that person. It's that you think they're the right choice at the time. You watch what they do when they're elected, and when they don't do the things they're supposed to do, you speak up and you say, look, I don't support you for doing uh, the things that you're doing now. And I don't think there's any any problem with that, uh, Chris. I think that's the right that's the right approach, and it sounds like uh, it's what – uh, you're doing, but but Nick, before we break, I want to give you a chance to to respond to what mm-hmm. Chris is saying about the uh, the level of accountability and responsibility that the governor has. Well, there's really two things here I think that we're talking about. There's how could this have been prevented, and how was how effective was the response? 
Regarding prevention, I mean, this was a bipartisan failure that was decades in the making, and it was a bipartisan failure because neither party has made sufficient investments in sort of updating our infrastructure that would have removed the decades approaching a century-old drinking water infrastructure in Benton Harbor that was at the root of this crisis. You know, there is, unlike Flint in that you, there was no, like, this was just, you know, old infrastructure. It wasn't a specific act. And so you, like, everybody is responsible for that. Now, in terms of the response, you know, there absolutely needs to be you know, some answers from the administration about you know, how did we get this far without having a more robust response? What mm-hmm. was the gap? What was the breakdown? And you know, I expect that, that that will be done and that there will be something put in place to try to make sure the next time this happens, there is a, a better response. Yeah. Okay, Nick Leonard, uh, always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for joining to talk about uh, what's going on in Benton Harbor. Of course, thank you. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the effort to resurrect the only historically black college that ever operated here in the state of Michigan, Detroit's Lewis College of Business. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. Across the country, applications for enrollment in America's 107 historically black colleges and universities are on the rise. But despite having the largest percentage of African-American residents of any major city, Detroit is not home to an HBCU. In fact, there's not a single HBCU in the entire state of Michigan. But that wasn't always the case. Lewis College of Business operated from 1928 to 2013, initially serving as a secretarial school for black women. Now there's an effort underway to reopen the Lewis School of Business. Here to talk about it are two people who are leading the effort. Dr. Dwayne Edwards is the founder of the Pencil Design Academy. Dr. Edwards, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate the opportunity. And Donald Tulski is president of the College for Creative Studies, which is partnering to reopen the Lewis College of Business. Donald, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So, Dwayne, give us a little of the history of the Lewis School of Business, the role it played here in Detroit, and why you want to bring it back now. Well, great. You know, you you mentioned a lot of it in the opening. Um, Violet T. Lewis was beyond a pioneer. She was a, a, a major entrepreneur. Her vision for providing Black women opportunities to, to work in offices in the, in the 20s and 30s is definitely unprecedented. Uh, and then, you know, just the vision of being able to, to provide major corporations in the city of Detroit, like Ford and GM and, and Michigan Bell, their first Black office employees, that speaks volumes to her her vision and the importance to what she was able to create in, in the city of Detroit. And uh, talk about the idea of bringing it back. Design is the focus that, uh, that, that you have on this and you believe that this can become a hub of design here in the city of Detroit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the city of Detroit is is the only UNESCO city for design in, in, in the whole United States. And we feel like the city of Detroit has such a strong culture around design and art that combining what Violet T. Lewis created, you know, many years ago, marrying it with design, then it, it just further elevates the opportunity that to, to really highlight Detroit as the great city that it is. Uh, Don, uh, talk about the role that the uh, Center for Creative Studies, uh, College for Creative Studies, wants to, to, to play here. What's the interest in helping to reopen Lewis College of Business? Well, um, uh, thanks, Stephen. I think uh, one of the biggest reasons is to create more pathways and more opportunities for a wider range and more diverse student body 
going into art and design. And there's tremendous opportunities in design. And I think uh, Dr. Edwards and what he has been able to do with pencil uh, has been fantastic um, for a number of years already. And in connecting it with uh, some of the support from CCS in terms of accreditation and helping to bring back Lewis College of Business as part of a pencil Lewis College of of Business and Design is really fabulous. And I think uh, CCS being a part of that, we can provide some infrastructure and support as well as use our accreditation um, up front here to help facilitate um, um, bringing back an HBCU. So, Dwayne, talk about why it's important that this will be an HBCU uh, and talk a little about your path through design, which I think helps, helps illuminate the difficulties that we still have getting opportunities for African-Americans to work in design. Yes. So 32 years ago, I was I was only the second African-American footwear designer in the whole industry. And you, you fast forward, you know, three decades later, there's still less than 190. And considering the fact that overall in the design industry, we represent less than 5%. So here, here we have, you know, an opportunity to, to really elevate the importance of design within the African-American community, but also within industry as well being able to to look at Pencil Lewis College in partnership with CCS, like to elevate design on on the level that it's actually been ignored, quite honestly, in in my opinion, where that will really transcend what we hope to be a different next three decades, where it won't take so long for this transition to happen. We've, We've, you know, within the black community, we are huge supporters of products and companies that produce products but yet we're not really in the on the back end of it being employed in these organizations. And we've had some amazing partners that we've had for the last 12 years with Pencil that's gonna transition into the Pencil Lewis side of what we're doing to where that's gonna even further elevate our relationships with them that will then provide more internships and then inevitably provide more jobs. And you have a plan to open in March of next year and for enrollment to start in December of this year, uh, do you expect to be able to operate as an official HBCU by by that point? Well, we have we have more work to do um, on the the federal side. But once you're designated an HBCU, which Lewis College of Business was in, in 1987, you're 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 an HBCU for life. Hmm. What we're doing is just reopening the HBCU, and through the through the partnership with CCS, we're working with the state the state government to recognize Pencil Lewis as the lone HBCU in, in the state of Michigan. And then after, after we are able to get that, hopefully bill, bill passed, we'll then start working towards the federal, the federal uh, redesignation as well. Hmm. Uh, Don, I know that CCS has uh, done a lot to try to redefine and really celebrate the landscape of design education here in Detroit, uh, but, but place this development in that context, how much does this add to that landscape? And how much does it add to the landscape of the very idea of design and design creativity here in our, in our city? Well, uh, Dr. Edwards mentioned being the only city in the United States or North America is the UNESCO city of design. Mm-hmm. I think bringing um, uh, pencil to Detroit, Dr. Edwards coming to Detroit, um, bringing back Lewis, uh, I think it's going to elevate the public understanding about the importance of design. And we all know we need better design across the board. We need more inclusive design. And I think our collaboration will, will increase the awareness and opportunities for a wide range, a diverse range of students to enter the design world where there are great uh, careers. Um, and I think uh, Dr. Edwards and CCS, a lot of our alumni that have gone through both programs are a great example of that. And I think what this collaboration can do is really provide more opportunity for more students, more diverse students, certainly from Detroit, but across the country to enter to the design world and make it more diverse. Hmm. So it's really, I think it's a great uh, opportunity to really elevate the importance of, of, of design uh, across the country and across the world. Yeah. And I think this is a sort of a new era for art and design schools uh, to really make sure that the public knows the importance of design and the great careers that go along with it. Right. And, and Dwayne, uh, the Pencil Design Academy, which 
has a national footprint, uh, will uh, will make that sort of uh, expansion that Don is talking about the 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 ripple effect. I think really possible. The connection with uh, a national design academy is really important here. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, what what we what we were able to accomplish in in the last eleven almost twelve years. Um, in in a small setting that we that we are as an academy, you know, once we we get to a larger city like Detroit, and then also attract additional new larger partners, it's it's going to elevate design as a whole, not just what we're looking to do on, on with Pencil Lewis, but really you know really really make it a, a true career choice that parents will now start to look at their kids. And see, hey, you know, there's an opportunity for them to fulfill their dreams when they're when they have these artistic, uh, you know, dreams and abilities. As as Don mentioned before, you know, it's sometimes art is not looked upon as a stable career, and then sometimes art and design are both lumped into one bucket. Mm-hmm. But art and design are two different things, and we know, you know, we know design is is a viable career. So is art as well. And, and I hope a lot of the, what we're trying to do will help actually better educate parents for them to support their children as they look for these creative careers. Okay, Dr. Dwayne Edwards and Donald Tusky, uh, great to have both of you here to talk about uh, this really interesting and exciting development with Lewis College of Business. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Great, thank you very much. Have a great day. That's going to do it for us this week. Come back Monday when we're going to hear from two experts who say even if the filibuster isn't ended, filibuster reform is coming one way or another. We'll talk about what that might look like and how different changes might achieve some of the goals that Democrats so badly want. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.